Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Standing Strong in Trying Times, a study of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel gives stories of faithful believers standing strong in trying times of exile and visions of the ultimate victory of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. This morning, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Daniel. Uh, I'm going to be reading from Daniel 7, 15 through 28. We kind of split Daniel chapter 7. There's so much stuff going on, especially because it's apocalyptic literature, and the American church is not very good at reading apocalyptic literature. So I wanted to take a little bit of time to kind of introduce this, and it really lays out the rest of the book is going to be kind of unpacking the things that are shown to us first in chapter 7. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 15 to 28, I'll be using the New International Version. It'll be up on the screen, but you can follow along in your Bible. So hear now the word of the sovereign God. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings, and he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints and the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. In the dark days of the winter of 1941, uh, Britain was hanging on by 
fingernails against the Nazis. They had won the Battle of Britain, but they were losing everywhere. Churchill had become the prime minister, but it was dark days. Churchill was actually meeting on this particular night and having dinner with the American ambassador and another special envoy that America had over towards Europe. And while they were having dinner, they received the news that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. And of course, Winston Churchill, who had been raised in a certain gentlemanly manner and thought even in war one could, should conduct oneself as a gentleman, was appalled by the news. And he was outraged. But he also was filled with hope. And Churchill wrote, actually in his memoirs of World War II, he wrote this sentence about that night. Being saturated and satiated with the motion and sensation, I went to bed and I slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. Because Churchill said this was a terrible thing, but I've been to America and I've seen the might that is now going to be entering the war. The war is over. We're going to win. There is no way the Axis will survive America being brought into the war. Our military might, our industrial might, the fact that we were too far away for anybody to bomb our industries while everybody else was getting done, Churchill said he knew. There were dark days ahead. In fact, the height of the Axis empire was going to be in 1942, not 1941. But nonetheless, Churchill said, but I know how this will end. The war is won. Now, I bring that up because Daniel's vision is really similar, and it elicits similar reactions. Daniel is overwhelmed, but the message is who's going to win in the end. Notice verses seven, uh, 15 to 18 here. This is what is central, really, in this whole section. In Daniel 7, 15 to 18, he says, I was troubled in spirit. The visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. This is one of the angels. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Just like Churchill, he's overwhelmed. He's, he's distressed at all of the death and problems that lie ahead. However, he recognizes the saints are going to receive the kingdom in the end. And so I'm going to be going through some symbols this morning, trying to describe what these beasts are, trying to describe what the little horn that appears to be one of the most enigmatic things in Scripture. There's a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of questions that go on. But fix this in your mind right from the beginning. The entire chapter is boiled down to this. There are going to be kingdoms. They are going to rage against the people of God. They are going to attack the people of God. But the victory is certain. God's kingdom will rule. It will reign. It will conquer all things for all time. And God's going to give it over to his people. That's the message of chapter 7. So we're going to wind a lot of paths on the way, but be like Churchill when you lay down. Sleep the sleep of the victorious. Because come what may, whatever dark days lay ahead, the battle is won. So let's dive in with that to our text. Now, there's these four beasts in this little horn. So notice, and we're told here, 
thankfully, what do these four beasts represent? You remember last week we had looked at them. They were all these. There's a winged lion, and there's a bear with ribs hanging out of its mouth, and there's a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then the last beast is so terrifying, Daniel says, it's not even like any beast you've ever seen before. It's unbelievable. Well, what are these things? These are strange apocalyptic visions. And I remind you, you cannot read apocalypse like read it literally. That's the craziest thing you could possibly do. It's crying out, don't read me literally, okay? It's highly symbolic. But we are told here, the four beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. We saw last week, and we're going to see, keep this unfolding, the first kingdom is Babylon, and this all links back to chapter 2. The second kingdom is Greece. The four heads we're going to see next week, it'll be one horn becomes four horns because Alexander dies and there are four kingdoms that come out of, I mean it was Persia, second. Third is Alexander, the four heads which become four horns and it's, the, it's Greece. And then finally it is Rome. And I want to remind us as we're going through, you remember I spoke last week of the chiasm where it was kind of like A, B, C, C, B, A, the chapters in Daniel that Four and five go together, three and six go together, and two and seven go together. Chapter seven is the same dream as Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter two. There were four kingdoms. But I want us to notice the difference. In Daniel chapter two, the four kingdoms are represented as precious metals. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Okay? Because government and kingdoms are good things. Please remember this. The thing that is worse than government is chaos. So Daniel 2 reminds us that kingdoms are good and precious. But Daniel 7 is flipping the coin over and saying, but remember this. In a fallen world, everything is touched by sin. And government, which is given by God for our good, underneath it all is still a beast. Because it's comprised of people like you and me. And fallen people in their sin will always create trouble. And so we're seeing both the preciousness but the bestiality of these kingdoms. Furthermore, notice in general the be beasts as you move along, they're becoming more and more bizarre and they're becoming more and more terrifying to Daniel. And it culminates with the first beast which is far more terrible than all before it. And that's the one that Daniel, if you notice, he doesn't ask any questions about kingdoms one, two, and three, and he's living in kingdom one, and he recognizes kingdom two is rising up because when he receives this vision, Persia is being united under Cyrus, and Daniel sees prophetically, Babylon's days are almost over. The, the, the clock has been struck, and Cyrus is about to start his march to take us over. But he doesn't ask any questions about that. He doesn't ask any questions about Greece, which we're going to see next week is terrifying in its own right. Everything is on Rome because the fourth kingdom is, uh, for two reasons, it's important to Daniel. Number one, as we saw last week, it's during the time of the fourth kingdom that the Son of Man is going to come and establish his kingdom. There was that vision last week of the Son of Man going up to the ancient of days and receiving authority and power and glory. So it's sometime during the kingdom of, of Rome, this fourth kingdom, that the Messiah was going to come and establish the kingdom of God. 
And we know historically that actually did happen. But the second reason that Daniel is concerned about this is because that last beast is more terrifying than all the others. It's scary to look at. It's got all of these horns, and then there's this one strange little horn. So let's turn to that. Notice in verse 24, we're told that the ten horns are ten kings who are going to rise from the kingdom. Now, in verse 23, we've been told the coming kingdom of Rome is going to be different and more terrifying than everything before it. And that's why Daniel's looking. And let me tell you, Rome was terrifying. There's no getting around it. Rome crushed and devoured everything around it. Alexander blew through real quickly, and people kind of liked a lot of things about Greek culture, but for the most part, he kind of left things alone, and he didn't get the rule all that long before everything broke up. When Rome came in, if you agreed and got with the program, you could be okay. If you did not, make no mistake, crushing, devouring, and what falls out of the mouth stamping on top of is a pretty good picture of what Rome was. If you don't believe it, ask Carthage. Hannibal beat Rome every single battle. I studied him when I was at the Naval Academy. We still studied all of Hannibal's things. He whacked the Roman army time after time after time after time until he lost one time. And when he lost, they went down and they literally sowed salt into the ground in Carthage and said, you're no longer not only not an empire, you can't grow anything here, nothing will be here, you're forgotten. That's the way Rome was. And notice that Daniel's got this, he's terrified, and this thing has ten horns. And we are told that the ten horns signify ten kings. Now, I want us to remember, because this is important as you move through, all of this is symbolic, and because you got animals are representing human kingdoms, and you've got here these horns that are representing kings, you're going to see both this week and next week the word king and kingdom is used interchangeably. In Daniel chapter 2, it was the same thing. The head of gold was Babylon. It was also specifically Nebuchadnezzar, as if there were never going to be any other kings of Babylon. But there were plenty of other kings of Babylon. And we're going to see the same thing over and over. And we're also going to see that the symbols are even used fluidly. So you're going to find out there is a little horn this week in the fourth kingdom. And next week when we read chapter 8, we're going to read about a little horn from the third kingdom. Okay? The symbols get used fluidly. We struggle with that because we're trying to read it literally, but this is apocalyptic literature. It's trying to paint a word picture for us. So what are these ten kings? I think what they represent is actually just the power and authority of Rome in general. Now, why do I say that? First off, Rome did not have kings. They never referred to anybody as a king. Rome was ruled by the Senate all the way until Julius Caesar. And that's why Caesar ends up getting assassinated after a few years, because Caesar is replacing the Roman Senate with authority and power in himself. And even then, the Caesars did not call themselves king. Secondly, the number 10 is used symbolically throughout these types of literature. You can read the same things when you get to the book of Revelation. The numbers, 10 is a number of completeness. That's what it refers to whenever it's used in these. And we're going to see that these numbers, you also see the same thing even with the number four, where it you know, speaks of the four winds of heaven. 
they knew the wind blew in more directions than four. They're just saying all of creation, okay, four corners of the earth. They knew the earth wasn't square. It's just saying the whole earth. Ten is a number that represents fullness. What they're saying here is this beast is full of authority and power. And that authority and power is represented in the horns. Now, there are some people, and I will say this, that really believe the ten horns primarily point to the first ten Caesars. And that's specifically because during the time of the first ten Caesars from Julius Caesar to Vespasian, you get, that's, it's with Caesar that they go into the Holy Land. It is during the time of the Caesars that Jesus is born, that Jesus is crucified, and the tenth Caesar, Vespasian, is the one who destroys the temple in Jerusalem. All that happens during the time of the first ten Caesars. And so I would say that it's, it's really representing the authority and power of Rome, whether it was in the Senate or when it gets replaced later by the Caesars, though we're going to see there's good reasons to see particular Caesars at certain times in this thing. But the most important thing is you're looking at this beast, and this fourth beast that's going to come is terrifying. And it spells difficult times for the people of God. Okay, there's all kinds of other cultures and civilizations going on. Daniel's not talking about those because they're not interacting with the people of God at this time. He's looking at them, and the fourth kingdom, that fourth beast, and his horns are going to be trouble. Now, specifically, he brings up that there is this little horn. So what, what is the little horn? I mean, this is a strange thing. It talks. It's got a man, you know, a mouth like a man. And we're going to see, again, a very similar horn in Greece. It's a man named Antiochus Epiphanes we'll talk about next week. But this week, I think it's literally the, the little horns are specifically the Caesars of Rome and especially Nero. It's the Caesars because, you know, they pluck up three of the former horns the Caesars seized power from the Senate and the people, but especially Nero, who was not in line to become Caesar, but because of a couple of assassinations, he ends up becoming the Caesar, is what ends up happening. So notice as you go through it, though, specifically the reason I'm saying it fits Nero is because the little horn, we're told, is going to persecute the people of God for times, time and half a time, which is a symbolic thing, but many uh, scholars look at it and say time is a year, times is two years, and half a time is half a year, so you're talking three and a half years. Does anybody want to guess how long Nero's persecution of Christians lasted? Three and a half years is exactly how long Nero's persecution of Christians lasted. However, you can also look and say Vespasian, because he came up after what was known as the year of three emperors because Nero committed suicide after persecuting the people of God for three and a half years. And then there were three emperors in rapid succession. The Jews saw what was going on, revolted against Rome, and guess how long the besieging of Jerusalem and all that lasted? Three and a half years is how long it all lasted. The two things, the persecution of Christians and the uh, siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and everything lasted a total of about seven years. But it's important to know 
that again, there's another horn in chapter 8, and that's what he's actually referred to. So keep in mind these symbols. If you try and say the symbol always and only means this, you're going to get yourself in trouble. We're trying to read it too literally. They're a picture. The little horn is one who comes and persecutes the people of God. And as we're going to see next year, anybody want to guess how long Antiochus Epiphanes persecuted the Jews? Right at three and a half years. This number and this thing keeps coming up. So I think just like the ten horns are symbolic, the little horn is, but it's really human rulers who persecute God's people, and especially the line of Caesars, and particularly Nero. Now, if you listen to a lot of preachers today, what you're going to hear is all of this being talked about a future antichrist. That is not the point of the passage. The passage doesn't say five kingdoms. How many kingdoms are there? Four. Was Jesus born during one of those kingdoms? Did he establish the kingdom of God during one of those kingdoms? Yes. This may have application to our future but its point is about what happened in the past, okay? So don't go jerking this out of the time of Rome and looking for something in the future. There's nothing in the text that tells us to do that. There were four kingdoms in the vision in chapter 2. There are four kingdoms in the vision of chapter 7. There's nothing about a future time that the European Union is going to come together and there's going to be 10 kings. That's all fanciful stuff we've made up and that we've read back into the text. That's not how it was understood in the ancient church and it's not what we should do. But more than anything, here's what's really critical to get. It's not so much about the identity of the little horn as it is about his character. What is he like? And the answer is, he is the opposite of Christ, the Son of Man, in every way. So notice how he's described in the text. First, the little horn is arrogant and boastful. In verse 8 and verse 20, and I'm not going to put both of them up, but the same thing is said, which is, the horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. This thing is speaking with arrogance and boastfulness. And I remind you, when Jesus came, what are we told he is like? He humbled himself, okay, and became as nothing for us and our salvation. And this is the Son of Man whose origin is eternal because he is God, and yet he humbles himself this horn is referred to as a little horn because it's trying to let us know he's not anything, but he talks like he's something. And he's going to be the exact opposite of Christ. Secondly, notice he not only speaks boastfully, he specifically speaks against God. He's a blasphemer. Notice in verse 25, he will speak against the most high. He directly speaks against God uh, and there may be reasons to even think that he refers to himself as God. But again, notice this is completely the opposite of Jesus, who humbles himself, who always points towards the Father and says, I've come to do the Father's will. How different is this than, for example, the Caesars? Because what do the Caesars come to view themselves as? Divine. 
And in fact, what's going to start leading to all kinds of persecution to the church is you just need to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar. And what does the church say? I can't do that. Well, you have to burn the pinch of incense and you have to say, Caesar is kurios. Caesar is Lord. And the church says, no, Iesu kurio. Jesus is Lord. I, I, I can't confess anyone else is Lord. That's what all of the persecution is going to come about. And make no mistake, this was a great change. The Persian kings did not declare themselves to be gods. The Greek kings did not really declare themselves to be gods. This is something that arises with Rome where men said, I am actually divine and must be worshipped. And it's going to create all kinds of problems for the church. And it's, again, the exact opposite of Christ. Thirdly, notice the little horn persecutes the people of God. In verse 25, the very next phrase is, he not only speaks against the Most High, he oppresses his saints. Now, this is what, again, if we look back at church history, who do we oftentimes think about really persecuting the church? It's the whole line of Caesars. And where does that really begin? It really begins with Nero. For the most part, the, the Caesars previous to Nero didn't think that much about Christians. Nero needed a scapegoat because there had been the fire, and who became his scapegoat? Christians. And if you ever go to Rome, you can stand on the spot. I remember doing this a few years ago, and your, knee gets, your knees get weak when you realize this is where Christians were doused with fuel and lit on fire to light the pathway from Nero's uh, passageway. It was not, you know, we always look back to them being in the Colosseum. The Colosseum didn't even exist at that time. There were other places for games. Nero did kill Christians always, but largely it was by lighting them on fire. It was by crucifying them. Uh, that's what he's actually doing. And again, from December 64 to mid-68 A.D., the persecution was so stiff against the church. Nero put Peter to death. Nero put Paul to death. Paul actually records, if you look at it in the scripture, Paul even says, when I, when I came to trial, everybody abandoned me, Timothy. It was a dark time for the church. But is Nero the only Caesar that ever persecuted the church? No. In around 96 AD, Domitian did a horrible persecution against the church. There was another massive wave of persecution around 250. And then perhaps the worst persecution of the church happened under the emperor Diocletian in the early 300s. Interestingly enough, Diocletian was succeeded by Constantine, who you may have heard became the first Caesar that was a Christian. The worst persecution happened right before the first Caesar who bowed the knee to Christ. It was a long history of persecution against the church. Notice the next thing that he actually does is the little horn tries to alter the faith and worship of God's people. Jesus has come to establish us, and in fact, However well we tried to express our praise to God this morning, however much as you sang to God this morning, and as you've joined in the prayers, and you say, I'm trying to be sincere, your worship and mine always falls short. 
Why is our worship acceptable to the Father? Because Jesus is the great high priest there, taking our little, you know, toddler cartoon drawings and turning them into fine works of art. That's why. But notice, the little horn does the opposite. He says, I'll tell you how to worship God. I'm going to abrogate it myself. So the next phrase in verse 25 is, he tries to change the set times and laws. In other words, God has told us in his word how to worship. But the little horn wants to interfere with that. The little horn says, I know how you ought to worship. We're going to see next week, that's the whole deal with Antiochus. So I won't give too much away, but we're going to see the other little horn in the third kingdom, and he's clearly in the kingdom of Greece, he's going to kind of mimic this and actually try and alter the way Jews worshipped. And this happened all the way through the Caesars of Rome, because what they said was, look, you need to get with the program. If you want to buy and sell, if you want to be part of the business of this community, here's the price. You come down you burn a pinch of incense, you declare that Caesar is Lord, you recognize him as divine, that is the price of admission. You can read about it in the early churches in Revelation, those seven letters. We see this over and over again. And the challenge was for believers, will you bend the knee? And thanks be to God, the response of the church overwhelmingly was, to paraphrase Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we will not bend, we will not bow. And if we burn, God will raise us from the ashes, and he may deliver us from you. But that is what the early church did, and we repeatedly suffered waves of persecution because we would not alter our worship to line up with what Roman worship was. They actually declared early Christians to be atheists because our worship was so foreign to what they did they actually said, these people have what they call love feasts that are a bunch of brothers and sisters, apparently, and they're doing some kind of a love feast. It must be an orgy. And then they're cannibals because they're talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. This is what the early Romans thought of us. Because we would, they were just like, just worship our way. Uh, yeah, we can't do that. You don't get to determine how we worship. Then next, notice the little horn, and this is key for where we're going to go the rest of the morning. The little horn is allowed to persecute for a limited time. So in verse 25, the last phrase is, the saints will be handed over to him for time, times, and half a time. Now notice, each of those things are important. The saints are handed over. Now, sometimes we don't like to hear this. We want to hear that somehow God's not sovereign when the saints are under persecution. But let me tell you, that's actually cold comfort in the end. We need to know that our God is sovereign. And remember, in the midst of when he first hears about the little horn, the very next thing that Daniel sees is, and I looked and there was the Ancient of Days. And he was seated on his throne, and he was surrounded by myriads. And then he hears about the little horn again. And then he says, and then I saw the Son of Man, and he came into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And he was given dominion and authority and power. 
Why does he keep being given that vision around the little horn? Because you need to remember, the little horn doesn't take the saints of God. They are, he is allowed to do this by the Father. God in his own wisdom and sovereignty for his own purposes is still in authority. And we need to understand that. And friends, it is our comfort because it means if our God is sovereign, then he determines how long this will last. And you remember Jesus talking about 70 AD, actually, in Matthew 24 says, nobody would survive unless those days were shortened. But for the sake of the elect, I will shorten the days because he is sovereign. Then he mentions times, time, and half a time again. Most scholars think that's probably three and a half years, but notice it's a cryptic phrase, and so that fits both with Nero, three and a half years, and also Vespasian for three and a half years. But the principle is always true. Whatever suffering lies in our... Look, I believe the American church, barring the third great awakening, which I hope you're praying for, but I am telling you, If business continues as usual, there are dark days ahead for us. That's not because I'm just a cranky old guy, and I want to say that. I may be a cranky old guy, but that's probably what's ahead of us. But brothers and sisters, we got to know that if that is the case, our God is in control. And we need to be like Daniel And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, we will obey where we can and where we cannot, we will not. And if our God wants, he can deliver us. And if he chooses not to, he will raise us from the ashes. But know this, we will not compromise the faith. And then the the last thing is, notice how hard this is. The little horn appears to be about to eliminate God's people. And then God intervenes. We're told this twice. to to stress how strong it is. Verses 21 and 22, we're told he's waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. Notice in verse 25 and 26, he's speaking against the Most High. He's oppressing his saints. The saints are handed over for times, time, and half a time, but the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. And I remind you again, Nero did all of this. It seemed like the church was not going to survive, and then Nero was gone. He ended up killing himself. We're also going to see the same thing with Antiochus Epiphanes. We talk about him next week. So I remind you, in both cases, it appears that the church is in dire straits. But God is sovereign, and God delivers his people. And I remind you again, you got a picture. If you read the end of 2 Timothy, it's a stark thing to read the last words the Apostle Paul is writing. Paul is saying, look, everybody abandoned me. When it came down to time, I'm sitting here by myself. That is a far cry from what we preach in our health and wealth prosperity gospel in America. Paul was not experiencing that sitting in a Roman jail cell by himself at the end of all of his years of ministry, but I'm going to come back later and we're going to quote some of Paul's words in a few minutes. So remember this, we see these beastly kingdoms, especially Rome and the line of the Caesars, they're arrayed against God, blaspheming God, they are persecuting the people of God, but in the end, 
Who wins? God. And that's the final point before we come to the thing, is to see God's people inherit the eternal kingdom. Please, I rivet our attention back to the Son of Man passage in Daniel 7, 14. This was the last verse before where we began reading, and we looked at it last week. He, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. If you come away from Daniel 7 and saying, this is awful, the little horn, the beast, and all of that, you're missing the point. Brothers and sisters, read this and sleep the sleep of the victorious. You're going to win. And not because of your own might and power. If Churchill thought America was a good ally to have, how about the ancient of days? How about the son of man with eternal power and glory? That's why I am confident and optimistic about the future. Not because of what resides in me, but because of what resides in my God. That is what is central in this passage. And notice that it specifically tells us three times, Daniel brings this up, not only will the kingdom of God survive, but you and I are going to inherit the kingdom. You have an eternal inheritance, and so do I. And it is all the kingdoms of humanity. Look at what he says, verses 17 and 18. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. I love that we receive it. We don't earn it. I didn't build it. It's given to me. It's like finding out that your dad's Jeff Bezos or something. He's left the entire fortune to you. Except for Jeff Bezos's fortune is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. We've got everything that has ever existed is sucked into the kingdom. And Jesus says, it's yours. That is good news. But once is not enough, Daniel comes back a second time in uh, verse 21 and 22. And he looks, he says, until the ancient of days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Again, we are given the kingdom. And then finally, in verses 26 and 27, the court sits and his power is taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints. See, I'm expecting to read they're handed over to God. The amazing thing is our God gives them to you and to me. You want to talk a prosperity gospel? There is prosperity. It's not in this life because there are little horns and the saints of God are oppressed. But make no mistake, the eternal inheritance that you have and that I have is beyond. Paul said, you can't even imagine. Words can't express what is waiting for you and for me beyond our wildest imagination. And it's not for an afternoon. And thanks be to God, we won't be like we are now. Because if you got it all right now, we'd get bored with it by next week. Is that not the way we are? Something I've wanted my whole life and I get it, and then after a while, you know, it's not quite what I thought it was going to be. Right? 
I'll make a prediction. Listen to athletes after they win the Super Bowl this year, because you hear it almost every year. It hasn't really hit me yet. And I want to go and put my arm around the guy and say, it's not going to hit you. This is as good as it gets. You've worked your whole life. This is it. <laughs> and that's not because it's bad winning the Super Bowl. That's the way we are. But it will not be that way in glory. Every day will be better than the day before. That is our eternal inheritance that is going to be handed over to us. So we get it. So the four kingdoms and the little horn, they persecute the people of God. But know this, Jesus, the Son of Man, has established the kingdom. And the kingdom is going to grow throughout this age until the time comes for God to consummate his plan. Do you understand? See, this is where we always think this. Like, well, when God establishes the kingdom, it's all over. But that's not what Jesus said. Matthew 13, if you look, I'm not going to put them up on the screen, but from verses 31 to 33, Jesus said, how do I describe the kingdom to you all? The kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds. And you plant it, and it grows day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, until it's the biggest tree in the whole garden. And the birds of all the nations come, and they flock and they take root in it. Or let me put it this way. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who's got a massive amount of dough and she puts a little yeast in it. And what does the yeast do? Spreads. Anyway, does it do it immediately? No. It slowly spreads and works throughout. Jesus set up the kingdom in AD 30. And I want you to know, please hear me in this, the kingdom has been growing from a little mustard seed. If you had looked at that ragtag group, I mean, Jesus ends his time, you talk about Paul, after all the Son of Man has done, the, the picture of the eternal glory and everything he's about to enter into, on the night he's betrayed, who stands by him? Men hear me in this, John's the only dude, at least a couple of the women stood by him. All the guys, Peter with all of his bravado, I don't know who that guy is. They all leave, they all abandon, but the kingdom is started. And Jesus ascends, and he goes to the Father, and he's given power and glory. And the little horn says, I'm going to crush the people of God. And the kingdom grows. And another Caesar rises up and says, I'm going to dispel with these people, and we're going to be done with these Christians. And the kingdom of God grows. And Diocletian declares, I'm going to stamp it out once and for all. And most of you had never even heard his name until I uttered it a few minutes ago. He's forgotten the kingdom of God grows. Do not believe what you're going to watch. This world will tell you every day the faith is irrelevant. The days of Christianity are behind. The church has never been larger the church has never been more geographically spread. The church has never been growing faster than it is right now. Do not miss it. The kingdom will prevail. Now, you and I might go through tough times because if you're under the little horn, it is tough. But we have to remember, it does not matter how dark it appears now, victory is certain. And the kingdom of God will last forever and ever and ever. 
Amen. And if that doesn't encourage you, I got nothing else for you. <laughs> so how do we apply this and we'll come to the Lord's table? The application is really simple. And I would encourage you in after hours this week for our guest, uh, I do a video that I'll film in a little while that will drop on Tuesday. You can see our website. And I'm going to talk about the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of man in this age and contrast God's kingdom to earthly kingdoms. Because one of the problems is we think the kingdom of God is like human kingdoms, and then that's why we miss what's going on around us. So I'll talk about that more. But I want us to ask just a simple question. Do I understand the biblical teaching on the kingdom of God in this age? Okay, do I understand it? See, the, the fourth beast was there. It's Rome. We can go back and read about it historically. Jesus came. The Son of Man came. Established the kingdom. He is ascended. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, as I talked and showed us over and over last week. Jesus, during his time here, taught us, look, the kingdom's going to start small. But make no mistake, it will grow. It will spread. It's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. It is working through the dough. Don't ever give up hope. But you and I live in the time that the kingdom is still growing. It's not the time of the end. And therefore, do not be surprised if persecution comes your way. The forces of this age always want to oppress the true people of God. I mean, Paul writes to Timothy. Now, maybe you can say, well, he was getting kind of depressed sitting there in the jail cell by himself, but what does Paul tell Timothy? In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. That's the reality. We need to understand that. So, do I see that as an exile, remember, you're an exile. That's why Daniel's so applicable to us. Do I see that as an exile, I should expect to be excluded, ridiculed, ostracized, and even persecuted? See, <clears throat> Christians sometimes, when I listen to the American church, and there's some court decision or some new policy that goes against us. And we all start screaming like it's big news. And it's the equivalent of the New York Times tomorrow saying, the sun rose in the east. Is this really news? Do we really need to talk about this? Your lot, O oh exile, is to be an exile. This is not your home. It's not my home. And they're fully well aware of that. So what is news is when I'm actually getting treated well. I should really hit my knees before the Father and give thanks because this is beyond anything I should expect. Do we recognize that? Because if you don't go in with that mindset, it's going to be tough. Another way of looking and asking this, or, or I would encourage... This is one thing, let me just say, pray for the persecuted church. Because know this, whether we're, we're not suffering persecution right now. Please do not use the word persecution for anything that has gone on in America at any time in our history of our country, include what's going on right now. That is spitting on the graves of actual martyrs. If you go places and you visit actual persecution, you will come back here and be aware that whatever this is, it ain't that. Pray 
for the persecuted church. Your brothers and sisters in places like Afghanistan and Egypt and Nigeria and Iran are undergoing real persecution. And brothers and sisters, if I'm right and it heads our way, you're going to be wanting somebody over there praying for you. Pray for them now. Last kind of part of the question, and then we come to the Lord's table. Do I see that God's kingdom will progress and grow until the time Christ returns? See, we think, so when's the persecution going to stop so that the kingdom can come? The kingdom's already come. Persecution is here with it until everything is consummated. One day, Jesus will return. Everything will be consummated. It will all be completed. Between now and then, there's always going to be little horns. There's always going to be beastly kingdoms. They're going to be here. They are going to persecute and rail and fight until the very end. Okay? If you go back and just look as a metaphor, for example, when God delivered his people, Israel, out of Egypt, did Egypt just say, hey, this sounds great, you guys go? Or did they fight against it? In fact, the closer it got, notice it got worse. You got to start killing your, your, your children. The second they're born, let, let's go ahead, their, their version of abortion. Let's go ahead and do that. All of that stuff. Expect that Satan will war against us, but know that we will win. And I want to encourage before we come to the Lord's table, if you're here or you're listening and you are not a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, this may seem like a strange time to encourage you. I do want to promise you, come and be part of the persecuted exile people of God. Yes. But I want to encourage you to do so because the rewards are beyond your imagination. Because life is short, eternity is long. If you have never embraced Christ by faith, again, the good news is it's not up to me to accomplish this. Jesus has done it, and he gives us the kingdom. But you want to be one of the ones that he gives the kingdom to. I urge you, look to him. So what we're going to do now, we are going to come to the Lord's table. And we're actually going to stand together, and we're going to do a corporate confession of faith before we come to the table. So if you can go ahead and stand, we're going to look at Romans chapter 8. Verses 31 to 39, and so you can see, I'll say the part that says leader and then the congregation read. We're going to go through Romans 8, 31 to 39, and this is Paul right after he's talked about what everything's going to be like when Jesus is returned and we've been raised from the dead and everything is glorious, but he's saying, but it's not that way yet, and this is what he reminds us of. So let's confess our faith together. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies.
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Be seated. Isn't it good to know that that is the truth? Brothers and sisters, if you believe those words, you are invited to this table, and I encourage you to come and receive the grace of the Lord. For what I receive from the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, I pass on to you, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Go ahead and you can open up the first part of the packet to have the bread ready. Father, bread is a basic staple of life, nourishing and sustaining our physical bodies that we might live and flourish. But more than physical bread, we need nourishment that sustains us spiritually as we journey through this life. Father, we find ourselves in this world to be like Job, who in the days of his severe affliction said, I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my daily bread. Father, we too need spiritual bread and we give you thanks for giving it to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would feed us now that we might receive grace and strength to sustain us in this world of affliction, suffering, and grief. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, in your days upon this earth, you were the man of sorrows, familiar with suffering and grief. Yet you did not shrink back from embracing our sorrows, but even endured the shame and suffering of the cross, bearing the righteous wrath of God for our sins, shedding your blood that we might be spared. 
So we give you thanks for your blood, for by it we have been sprinkled, saved, and sealed, and through it we are inheritors of your eternal kingdom. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together and cry out with me to God. <clears throat> Holy Spirit of the living God, we confess that like Daniel, we can become faint when we consider the lot of your people in this age of darkness. Yet we also take heart today because we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Those who stood firm in the days of their trial and who have received the victor's crown. Empower us that we may throw off everything that hinders and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Spirit, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, remind us that unlike Jesus, we have not yet shed our blood in our struggle against sin, nor have we been put to death by wicked men as some of our brothers and sisters have been. So we ask, encourage us O Spirit of God, that we do not grow weary and lose heart. Remind us that the sufferings of this life are short, but our, eternal, our inheritance is eternal. Spur us on that at life's end we may declare with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. We ask that you would do this, O Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Now, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made you to be a kingdom and priest to serve your God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.